Chapter Twelve of the Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Twelve, Apollo's Lyre. On this way they reached the roof. Christine tripped over it as lightly as a swallow. Their eyes swept the empty space between the three domes and the triangular pediment. She breathed freely over Paris, the whole valley of which was seen at work below. She called Raoul to come quite close to her, and they walked side by side along the zinc streets, in the leaden avenues. They looked at their twin shapes in the huge tanks full of stagnant water, where in the hot weather the little boys of the ballet, a score or so, learned to swim and dive. The shadow had followed behind them, clinging to their steps and the two children little suspected its presence when they at last sat down, trustingly, under the mighty protection of Apollo, who, with a great bronze gesture, lifted his huge lyre to the heart of a crimson sky. It was a gorgeous spring evening. Clouds, which had just received their gossamer robe of gold and purple from the setting sun, drifted slowly by, and Christine said to Raoul, soon we shall go farther and faster than the clouds to the end of the world and then you will leave me raoul but if when the moment comes to take me away i refuse to go with you well you must carry me off by force are you afraid that you will change your mind christine i don't know she said shaking her head in an odd fashion and she shivered and nestled in his arms with a moan i am afraid now of going back with him in the ground compels you to go back christine if i did not go terrible misfortunes may happen but i can't do it i can't do it i know one ought to be sorry for people who live underground but he is too horrible and yet the time is at hand i have only a day left and if i did not go he would come and fetch me with his voice and he would drag me with him underground and go on one knee before me with his death's head he will tell me that he loves me and he will cry Oh, those tears, Raoul, those tears and those black eye sockets of the death's head. I cannot see those tears flow again. She wrung her hands in anguish, while Raoul pressed her to his heart. No, no, you shall never hear him tell you that he loves you. You shall not see his tears. Let us fly, Christine, let us fly at once. And he tried to drag her away, then and there, but she stopped him. No, no, she said, shaking her head sadly. Not now. It would be too cruel. Let him hear me sing tomorrow evening, and then we will go away. You must come and fetch me in my dressing-room, at midnight exactly. He will then be waiting for me in the dining-room by the lake. We shall be free, and you shall take me away. You must promise me that, Raoul, even if I refuse, for I feel that, if I go back this time, I shall perhaps never return. And she gave a sigh to which it seemed to her that another sigh behind her replied didn't you hear her teeth chattered no said raoul i heard nothing it is too terrible she confessed to be always trembling like this yet we are in no danger here we are at home in the sky in the open air in the light the sun is flaming and night-birds cannot bear to look at the sun i have never seen him by daylight it must be awful oh the first time i saw him i thought he was going to die why asked raoul really frightened at the aspect which this strange confidence was taking 
because i had seen him this time raoul and christine turned round at the same time there's someone in pain said raoul perhaps someone has been hurt did you hear i can't say christine confessed even when he's not there my ears are full of his sighs still if you heard they stood up and looked around them they were quite alone on the immense lead roof they sat down again and raoul said tell me how you saw him first i had heard him for three months without seeing him the first time i heard it i thought as you did that that adorable voice was singing in another room i went out and looked everywhere but as you know raoul my dressing-room is very much by itself i could not find the voice outside my room whereas it went on steadily inside and it not only sang but it spoke to me and answered my questions like a real man's voice with this difference that it was as beautiful as the voice of an angel i had never got the angel of music whom my poor father had promised to send me as soon as he was dead i really think that mamma valerius was a little bit to blame i told her about it and she at once said it must be the angel at any rate you can do no harm by asking him i did so and the man's voice replied that yes it was the angel of music the voice which i had been expecting and which my father had promised me from that time onwards the voice and i became great friends it asked leave to give me lessons every day i agreed and never failed to keep the appointment which it gave me in my dressing-room you have no idea though you have heard the voice of what those lessons were like no i have no idea said raoul what was your accompaniment we were accompanied by a music which i do not know it was behind the walls and wonderfully accurate the voice seemed to understand mine exactly to note precisely where my father had left off teaching me in a few weeks time i hardly knew myself when i sang i was even frightened i seemed to dread a sort of witchcraft behind it but mamma valerius reassured me she said she knew i was much too simple a girl to give the devil a hold on me my progress by the voice's own order was kept a secret between the voice mamma valerius and myself it was a curious thing but outside the dressing-room i sang with my ordinary everyday voice and nobody noticed anything i did all that the voice asked it said wait and see we shall astonish paris i waited and lived on in a sort of ecstatic dream it was then that i saw you for the first time in my house i was so glad i had never thought of concealing my delight when i reached my dressing-room unfortunately the voice was there before me and soon noticed by my airs that something had happened it asked what the matter was and i saw no reason to keep our story secret or conceal the place you filled in my heart then the voice was silent i called to it but it did not reply i begged and entreated but in vain i was terrified lest it had gone for good i wished to heaven it had dear that night i went home in a desperate condition i told mamma valerius who said why of course the voice is jealous and that dear first revealed to me that i loved you christine stopped and laid her head on raoul's shoulder they sat like that for a moment in silence and they did not see did not perceive the movement at a few steps from them of the creeping shadow of two great black wings a shadow that came along the roof so near so near them that it could have stifled them by closing over them the next day christine continued with a sigh i went back to my dressing-room in a very pensive frame of mind 
the voice was there, spoke to me with great sadness and told me plainly that, if I must bestow my heart on earth, there was nothing for the voice to do but go back to heaven. And it said this was such an accent of human sorrow that I ought there and then to have suspected and began to believe that I was the victim of my deluded senses. But my faith in the voice, with the memory of my father so closely intermingled, remained undisturbed. I feared nothing so much as I might never hear it again. I thought about my love for you and realised all the useless danger of it. I did not even know if you remembered me. Whatever happened, your position in society forbade me to contemplate the possibility of ever marrying you. And I swore to the voice that you were no more than a brother to me, nor would ever be, and my heart was incapable of any unearthly love. And that, my dear, is why I refused to recognise you, or see you when I met you on the stage or in the passages. Meanwhile the hours during which the voice taught me were spent in a divine frenzy, until, at last, the voice said to me, You can now, Christine Dier, give to men a little of the music of heaven. I don't know how it came to be that Carlotta did not come to the theatre that night, nor why I was called upon to sing in her stead, but I sang with a rapture that I had never known before, and I felt for a moment as if my soul were leaving my body. Oh, Christine, said Raoul, my heart quivered that night at every accent of your voice. I saw the tears stream down your cheeks, and I wept with you. I felt myself fainting, said Christine. I closed my eyes. When I opened them, you were by my side. But the voice was also there, Raoul. I was afraid for your sake, and again I would not recognize you, and began to laugh when you reminded me that you had picked up my scarf from the sea. Alas, there was no deceiving the voice. The voice recognized you and the voice was jealous. It said that if I did not love you, I would not avoid you, but treat you like any other old friend. It made me scene upon scene. At last I said to the voice, That will do. I am going to Peros tomorrow to pray on my father's grave, and I shall ask Monsieur Raoul de Chagny to come with me. Do as you please, for I shall be at Peros too, for I am wherever you are, Christine. And... If you are still worthy of me, if you have not lied to me, I will play you the resurrection of Lazarus on the stroke of midnight on your father's tomb and on your father's violin. That, dear, is how I came to write you the letter which brought you to Peros. How could I have been so beguiled? How was it when I saw the personal and selfish point of view of the voice? that I did not suspect it was some impostor. Alas, I was no longer mistress of myself. I had become his thing. How could you sing, sing like that, while crying? cried Raoul. But after all, you soon came to know the truth. Why did you not at once rid yourself of that abominable nightmare? Know the truth, Raoul. Rid myself of that nightmare. But my poor boy, I was not caught in the nightmare until the day I learnt the truth. Pity me, Raoul, pity me. You remember the terrible evening when Carlotta thought she had been turned into a toad on stage, and when the house was suddenly plunged into darkness through the chandelier crashing to the floor. They were killed and wounded that night, and the whole theatre rang with terrified screams. My first thought was of you and the voice. I was once easy where you were concerned, for I had seen you in your brother's box, and I knew you were not in danger. But the voice had told me it would be at the performance, and I was really afraid for it just as if it was an ordinary person who was capable of dying. I thought to myself, 
the chandelier may have fallen upon the voice. I was then on the stage, and was nearly running into the house to look for the voice amongst the killed and wounded, when I thought that, if the voice was safe, it would surely be in my dressing-room, and I rushed to my room. The voice was not there. I locked the door, and with tears in my eyes besought it, if it was still alive, to manifest itself to me. The voice did not reply, but suddenly I heard a long, beautiful wail which I knew well. It was the plaint of Lazarus when, at the sound of the Redeemer's voice, he begins to open his eyes and see the light of day. It is the music which you and I, Raoul, heard at Peros. And then the voice began to sing the leading phrase, Come and believe in me. Whoso believes in me shall live. Walk. Whoso hath believed in me shall never die. I cannot tell you the effect that that music had upon me. It seemed to command me, personally, to come, to stand up and come to it. It retreated and I followed. Come and believe in me. I believed in it. I came. I came and, this is the extraordinary thing, my dressing room, as I moved, seemed to lengthen out, to lengthen out. Evidently it must have been an effect of mirrors, for I had the mirror in front of me. And suddenly I was outside the room without knowing how. Without knowing how? Christine, Christine, you really must stop dreaming. I was not dreaming, dear. I was outside the room without knowing how. You who saw me disappear from my room one evening may be able to explain it, but I cannot. I can only tell you that, suddenly, there was no mirror before me and no dressing room. I was in a dark passage. I was frightened and cried out. It was quite dark, but for a faint red glimmer on the distant corner of the wall. I cried out. My voice was the only sound, for the singing and the violin had stopped. And suddenly, a hand was laid on mine or rather a stone-cold bony thing that seized my wrist and did not let go. I cried out, an arm took me round the waist and supported me. I struggled for a little while and then gave up in the attempt. I was dragging myself towards the little light, and then I saw that I was in the hands of a man, wrapped in a large cloak and wearing a mask that hid his whole face. I made one last effort, with limbs stiffened. My mouth opened to a scream, but a hand closed around it, a hand which I felt on my lips, on my skin, a hand which smelt of death, and then I fainted away. When I opened my eyes, we were still surrounded by darkness. A lantern, standing on the ground, showed a bubbling well. The water splashing from the well disappeared almost at once, under the floor where I was lying, with my head on the knee of the man with the black cloak and the black mask. He was bathing my temples, and his hands smelt of death. I tried to push them away, and asked, Who are you? Where is the voice? His only answer was a sigh. Suddenly a hot breath passed over my face, and I perceived a white shape, besides the man's black shape, in the darkness. The black shape lifted me onto the white shape. A glad neighing greeted my astounded ears, and I murmured, Cesar! The animal quivered. Raoul, I was lying half back on the saddle, and I had recognized the white horse from the Profita, which I had so often fed sugar and sweets. I remembered that, one evening, there was a rumor on the theater that the horse had disappeared, and that it had been stolen by the opera ghost. I believed in the voice, but I had never believed in the ghost. Now, however, I began to wonder with a shiver whether I was going to be the ghost's prisoner. 
I called upon the voice to help me, for I should never have imagined the voice and the ghost were one. You have heard about the opera ghost, have you not, Raoul? Yes, but tell me what happened when you were on the white horse of the Propheta. I made no movement and let myself go. The black shape held me up, and I made no effort to escape. A curious feeling of peacefulness came over me, and I thought that I must be under the influence of some cordial. I had the full command of my senses, and my eyes became used to the darkness, which was lit, here and there, by fitful gleams. I calculated that we were in a long circular gallery, probably running down the opera, which was immense, underground. I had once been down into those cellars, but had stopped at the third floor, though there were two lower still, large enough to hold a town. But the figure of which I had caught sight had made me run away. There are demons down there, quite black, standing in front of boilers, and they wield shovels and pitchforks and poke up fires and stir the flames, and, if you go too near them, they frighten you by suddenly opening the red mouths of the furnaces. Well, while Cesar was quietly carrying me on his back, I saw those black demons in the distance, looking quite small in front of the red fires of their furnaces. They came into sight, disappearing again, into sight again, as we went on our winding way. At last they disappeared altogether. The shape was still holding me up, and Cesar walked on, unled, and sure-footed. I could not tell you, even approximately, how long this ride lasted. I only know that we seemed to turn and turn, and often went down a spiral stair, into the very heart of the earth. Even then, it may be that my head was turning, but I don't think so. No, my mind was quite clear. At last, Cesar raised his nostrils, sniffed the air, and quickened his pace a little. I felt a moistness in the air, and Cesar stopped. The darkness had lifted. A sort of bluey light surrounded us. We were at the edge of a lake, whose leaden waters stretched into the distance, into the darkness. But the blue light lit up the bank, and I saw a little boat fastened to an iron ring on the wharf. A boat? Yes, but I knew that all that existed, and there was nothing supernatural about an underground lake and a boat. But think of the exceptional circumstances of which I arrived upon that shore. I don't know whether the effect of the cordial had worn off when the man's shape lifted me onto the boat, but the terror began all over again. My gruesome escort must have noticed it, for he sent Cesar back, and I heard his hoofs trampling up the staircase, while the man jumped into the boat, and tied the ropes that held it, and seized the oars. He rowed with a quick, powerful stroke. His eyes, under the mask, never left me. We slipped across the noiseless water, in the bluey lights, which I told you of. Then we were in the dark again, and we touched shore, and I was once more taken up in the man's arms. I cried aloud. Then, suddenly, I was silent, dazed by the light. Yes, a dazzling light in the midst of which I have been put down. I sprang to my feet. I was in the middle of a drawing-room that seemed to me to be decorated, adjourned and furnished with nothing but flowers, flowers both magnificent and stupid, because of the silk ribbons that tied them to the baskets, like those which they sell in the shops and the boulevards. They were much too civilised flowers, like the ones I was used to finding in my dressing-room after the first night. And, in the midst of these flowers, stood the black shape of the man in the mask, his arms crossed, and he said, don't be afraid, Christine. You are in no danger. It was the voice. My anger equalled my amazement. I rushed at the mask and tried to snatch it away, so as to see the face of the voice. The man said, You are in no danger, so long as you do not touch the mask. And, taking me gently by the wrist, he forced me into a chair, then went down on his knees before me and said nothing more. 
This humility gave me back some of my courage, and the light restored me to the realities of life. However extraordinary this adventure might be, I was now surrounded by mortal, visible, tangible things. The furniture, the hangings, the candles, the vases, and the very flowers in the baskets, of which I could almost have told you where they came from and what they cost, were bound to confine my imagination to the limits of the drawing-room, quite as commonplace as any other. At least, at least had the excuse of not being in the cellars of the opera. I had, no doubt, to do with a terrible, eccentric person, who in some mysterious fashion, had succeeded in taking his abode there, under the opera house, five stories below the level of the ground. And the voice, the voice which I had recognised under the mask, was on its knees before me. Was a man! I began to cry. The man, still kneeling, must have understood the cause of my tears, for he said, It is true, Christine. I am not an angel, nor a genius, nor a ghost. I am Eric. Christine's narrative was again interrupted. An echo behind them seemed to repeat the word after her. Eric. What echo? They both turned round and saw that night had fallen. Raoul made a movement as though to rise, but Christine kept him beside her. Don't go, she said. I want you to know everything here. Why here, Christine? I'm afraid of your catching cold. We have nothing to fear except the trap-doors, dear, and here we are miles away from the trap-doors, and I am not allowed to see you outside the theatre. This is not a time to annoy him. We must not arouse his suspicion. Christine, Christine, something tells me that we are wrong to wait till tomorrow evening, and that we ought to fly at once. I tell you that, if he does not hear me sing tomorrow, it will cause him infinite pain. It is difficult not to cause him pain, and yet to escape from him for good. You are right in that, Raoul. For certain he will die of my flight. And she added in a dull voice, But then it counts in both ways, for we risk killing us. Does he love you so much? He would commit murder for me. But one can find out where he lives, one can go in search of him. Now that we know that Eric is not a ghost, one can speak to him and force him to answer. Christine shook her head. No, no, there is nothing to be done with Eric except to run away. Then why, when you were able to run away, did you go back to him? Because I had to, and you will understand when I tell you how I left him. Oh, I hate him, cried Raoul. And you, Christine, tell me, do you hate him too? No, said Christine simply. No, of course not. Why, you love him. Your fear, your terror, all of that is just love, and love of the most exquisite kind, the kind which people do not admit even to themselves, said Raoul bitterly. The kind that gives you a thrill when you think of it. Picture it. A man who lives in a palace underground. And he gave a leer. Then you want me to go back there? Said the young girl cruelly. Take care, Raoul. I have told you I should never return. There was an appalling silence between the three of them, the two who spoke and the shadow who listened behind them. Before answering that, said Raoul at last, speaking very slowly, I should like to know with what feeling he inspires you, since you do not hate him. With horror, she said. That is the terrible thing about it. He fills me with horror, and I do not hate him. How could I hate him, Raoul? Think of Eric at my feet, in the house on the lake, underground. He accuses himself, he curses himself, he implores my forgiveness. He confesses his cheat. He loves me. He lays at my feet an immense and tragic love. He has carried me off for love. 
he has imprisoned me with him underground for love but he respects me he crawls he moans he weeps and when i stood up raoul and told him i could only despise him if he did not then and there give me back my liberty he offered it he offered to show me the mysterious road only only he rose too and i was made to remember that he was not an angel nor a ghost nor a genius he remained the voice for he sang i listened and stayed that night we did not exchange another word he sang me to sleep when i woke up i was alone lying on the sofa in a simply furnished little bedroom with an ordinary mahogany bedstead lit by a lamp standing on a marble top on an old louis philippe chest of drawers i soon discovered that i was a prisoner and that the only outlet of my room led to a very comfortable bathroom on returning to the bedroom i saw on the chest of drawers a note in red ink which said my dear christine you need have no concern as to your fate you have no better no more respectful friend in the world than myself you are alone at present in this home which is yours i am going out shopping to fetch you all the things that you can need i felt sure that i had fallen in the hands of a madman i ran round my little apartment looking for a way to escape which i could not find i upbraided myself for my absurd superstition which had caused me to fall into the trap i was inclined to laugh and cry at the same time this is the state of mind which eric found me after giving three taps of the wall he walked in quietly through the door which i did not notice until he left it open he had his arms full of boxes and parcels and arranged them on the bed in a leisurely fashion while i overwhelmed him with abuse and called upon him to take off his mask if it covered the face of an honest man he replied serenely you shall never see eric's face and he reproached me with not having finished dressing at that time of day he was good enough to tell me that it was two o'clock in the afternoon he said he would give me half an hour and while he spoke wound up my watch and set it for me after which he asked me to come into the dining-room where a nice lunch was waiting for us i was very angry slammed the door in his face and went into the bathroom when i came out again feeling greatly refreshed eric said that he loved me but that he would never tell me so except when i allowed him and that the rest of the time would be devoted to music what do you mean rest of the time i asked five days he said with decision i asked him if i should then be free he said you will be free christine for when those five days are past you will have learned not to see me and then from time to time you will come to see your poor eric he pointed at the chair opposite him at the little table and i sat down feeling greatly perturbed however i ate a few prawns and a wing of chicken and drank half a glass of tokay which he had himself he told me bought from the conisberg cellars he did not eat or drink i asked him what his nationality was and if the name eric did not point to a scandinavian origin he said that he had no name or no country and that he had taken the name of eric by accident after lunch he rose and gave me the tips of his fingers saying that he would like to show me over his flat but i snatched away my hands and gave a cry what i had touched was cold and at the same time bony and i remember that his hands smelt of death oh forgive me he moaned and he opened a door before me 
This is my bedroom, if you care to see it. It is rather curious. His manners, his words, his attitudes gave me confidence, and I went in without hesitation. I felt as if I were entering the room of dead person. The walls were hung with black, but instead of white trimmings that were usually set off at that funeral upholstery, there was an enormous stave of music with the notes of Dysaray, many times repeated. In the middle of the room was a canopy, from which hung curtains of red brocaded stuff, and under the canopy, an open coffin. That is where I sleep, said Eric. One has to get used to everything in life, even to eternity. The sight upset me so much that I turned away my head. Then I saw the keyboard of the organ, which filled one side of the wall. On the desk was a music book covered in red notes. I asked leave to look at it, and read, "Don Juan Triumphant." Yes, he said. I compose sometimes. I began that work twenty years ago. When I have finished, I shall take it away with me in that coffin, and never wake up again. You must work at it as seldom as you can," I said. He replied, "I sometimes work at it for fourteen days and nights together, during which I live on music alone, and then I rest for years at a time." Will you play me something from your Don Juan Triumphant? I asked him, thinking it would please him. You must never ask me that," he said in a gloomy voice. "I will play you Mozart, if you like, which will only make you weep. But my Don Juan, Christine, burns, and yet he is not struck by fire from heaven. Thereupon we returned to the drawing room. I noticed that there was no mirror in the whole apartment. I was going to remark upon this, but Eric sat down at the piano and said. You see, Christine, there is some music that is so terrible that it consumes all those who approach it. Fortunately, you have not come to that music yet, for you would lose all your pretty colouring, and nobody would know you when you returned to Paris. Let us sing something from the opera, Christine Dieu. He spoke these last words as though he were flinging an insult at me. What did you do? I had no time to think about the meaning he put into those words. We at once began to duet in Othello, and already the catastrophe was upon us. I sang Desdemona with despair, a terror which I had never displayed before. As for him, his voice thundered forth, his revengeful soul in every note. Love, jealousy, hatred burst out around us in harrowing cries. Eric's black mask made me think of the natural mask of the Moor of Venice. He was Othello himself. Suddenly. I felt the need to see beneath the mask. I wanted to know the face of the voice, and in a moment, which I was utterly unable to control, swiftly my fingers tore away at the mask. Oh, horror! 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 Christine stopped at the thought of that vision that had scared her, while the echoes of the night, which had repeated the name of Eric, now thrice moaned the cry. Horror! 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 Raoul and Christine, clasping each other closely, raised their eyes to the stars that shone in a clear and peaceful sky. Raoul said, "Strange, Christine, that this calm, soft night should be so full of plaintive sounds. One would think that it was sorrowing with us." When you know the secret, Raoul, your ears, like mine, will be full of lamentations," 
she took raoul's protecting hands in hers and with a long shiver continued yes if i live to be a hundred i should always hear the superhuman cry of grief and rage which was uttered when the terrible sight appeared before my eyes you have seen death's heads when they have been dried and withered for centuries perhaps if you were not the victim of a nightmare you saw his head in peros and when you saw red death stalking round at the masked ball all of those heads were motionless and their dumb horror was not alive but imagine if you can red death's mask suddenly coming to life in order to express with four black holes for its eyes its nose its mouth extreme anger the mighty fury of the demon and not a ray of light from the sockets for as i learnt later you could not see his blazing eyes except in the dark i fell back against the wall he came up to me grinding his teeth and as i fell upon my knees he hissed mad incoherent words and cursed at me leaning over me he cried look you want to see see feast your eyes glut your soul on my cursed ugliness look at eric's face now you know the face of the voice you were not content to hear me eh you wanted to know what i looked like oh you women are so inquisitive well are you satisfied i'm a very good-looking fellow eh when a woman has seen me as you have she belongs to me she loves me forever i am a kind of don juan you know and drawing himself to his full height with his hands on his hips wagging the hideous thing that was his head on his shoulders he roared look at me i am don juan triumphant and when i turned my head and begged for mercy he drew it to him brutally twisting his dead fingers in my hair enough enough cried raoul i'll kill him in heaven's name christine tell me where the dining-room on the lake is i must kill him oh be quiet raoul if you want to know yes i want to know how and why you went back i, I must know but in any case i will kill him oh raoul listen listen he dragged me by the hair and then and then oh it is too horrible well what out with it exclaimed raoul fiercely out with it quick then he hissed at me ah i frightened you do i i dare say perhaps you think that i have another mask eh and that this this my head is a mask well he roared tear it off as you did the other come come along i insist your hands your hands give me your hands he seized my hands and dug them into his awful face he tore his flesh with my nails he tore his terrible dead flesh with my nails no he shouted while his throat throbbed and panted like a furnace know that i am bit of death from head to foot and that it is a corpse which loves you and adores you and will never never leave you look i am not laughing now i am crying crying for you christine who have torn off my mask and who therefore can never leave me again as long as you thought me handsome you could have come back i know you would have come back but now that you know my hideousness you would run away for good so i shall keep you here why did you want to see me oh mad christine who wanted to see me when my own father never saw me and when my mother so as not to see me made me a present of my first mask
He let go at me at last, and I dragged myself about on the floor, uttering terrible sobs. Then he crawled away like a snake, and went into his room, closed the door, and left me alone with my reflections. Presently I heard the sound of the organ, and then began to understand when he spoke about opera music. What I now heard was utterly different from what I had heard then. His Don Juan triumphant, for I had no doubt but that he had rushed off to his masterpiece to forget the horror of the moment, seemed to me, at first, one long, awful, magnificent sob. But, little by little, it expressed every emotion, every suffering of which mankind was capable of. It intoxicated me, and I opened the door that separated us. Eric rose as I entered, but dared not turn in my reflection, but dared not turn in my direction. Eric, I cried, show me your face without fear. I swear that you are the most unhappy and sublime of men. If ever again I shiver when I look at you, it will be because I am thinking of the splendour of your genius. Then Eric turned round, for he believed me, and also I had faith in myself. He fell at my feet with words of love, with words of love in his death's mouth. When the music ceased, he kissed the hem of my dress and did not see that I had closed my eyes. What more can I tell you, dear? You know the tragedy. It went on for a fortnight, a fortnight during which I lied to him. My lies were as hideous as the monster who inspired them, but they were the price of my liberty. I burned his mask, and managed so well that, even when he was not singing, he tried to catch my eye, like a dog sitting by its master. He was my faithful servant, and paid me endless attentions. Gradually I gave him such confidence that he ventured to let me go walking on the banks of the lake, and to row me in the boat on its leaden waters. Towards the end of my captivity, he let me go through the gates that closed the underground passages in the Rue Scribe. Here a carriage awaited us, and took us to the Bois. The night when we met you was nearly fatal to me, for he is jealous of you, and I had to tell him that you were soon going away, when at last, after a fortnight of that horrible captivity, during which I was filled with pity, enthusiasm, despair, and horror by turns, he believed me when I said, I will come back. And you went back, Christine, groaned Raoul. Yes, dear, and I must tell you that it was not his frightful threats when setting me free that helped me to keep my word. It was the harrowing sobs which he gave on the threshold of the tomb. That sob attached me to the unfortunate man more than I myself suspected when saying good-bye to him. Poor Eric, poor Eric. You tell me that you love me, said Raoul, rising. But you had recovered your liberty hardly a few hours before you returned to Eric. Remember the masked ball. Yes, and do you remember those hours which I passed with you, Raoul, to the great danger of both of us? I doubted your love for me during those hours. Do you doubt still, Raoul? Then know that each of my visits to Eric increased my horror for him, for each of those visits, instead of calming him down as I hoped, made him mad with love. And I am so frightened, so frightened. You are frightened. But do you love me? If Eric were good-looking, would you love me, Christine? She rose in her turn putting her two trembling arms round the young man's neck, and said, "'Oh, my betrothed of a day! If I did not love you, I would not give you my lips. Take them, for the first time and the last!' He kissed her lips, but the night that surrounded them was rent asunder. They fled as at the approach of a storm, and their eyes, filled with dread of Eric, showed them before they disappeared, high above them, an immense night-bird that stared at them with its blazing eyes, and seemed to cling to the string of Apollo's lyre. End of chapter 12